Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Well, a little bit of Fed speak. We had some economic data uh, today with the jobless claims, mm -hmm. kind of right in line with expectations. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like this Fed obviously has taken March off the table for a cut. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where we are from May, maybe 50-50. I don't know what the warp thing Majiggy says, but let's talk to somebody who actually does this for a living. <laughs> um, that would be one Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he is down in the Bloomberg campus getting ready for what will be a spectacular lunch, I'm sure, because that's how they do it down there in Princeton. <laughs> right. Let's just talk about that. Yeah, I know. I mean, just it's unbelievable. They did a renovation, which I don't even know why they did a renovation because it was already a great facility, but it's even better now. All right, Ira, um, talk to us about May. Uh, I'll, I'll give you March. We're not going to do anything in March. That's fine. But I'm focusing now on May. I could argue that they don't need to do anything in May. What do you think? Yeah, and there's certainly, and there's Paul. There certainly are people who are arguing that very, uh, th that very thing. When you look at the recent data, it does seem like the economy is not slowing down very much. You you don't have you have some signals that maybe inflation will kind of stabilize here instead of continuing to fall. So so that's leading some people to think that the Federal Reserve might not uh, might not cut in May. So we are pricing, like you said, using the WIRP function, around a around a three quarters chance of a of a cut in May. And I, I think that that's probably the correct pricing given the information that we currently have. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, you know, the thing that we have to remember, though, is that the Federal Reserve doesn't want the difference between inflation and the Fed funds rate to get too wide because they think that that will tighten financial conditions too much and slow the economy uh, more. Now, you know, how effective is monetary policy right now and what is the lead and lags of monetary policy right now? No one really knows. And, and it's certainly much longer this time, I think, mm -hmm. uh, because of some of the structural changes, like everyone with low mortgage rates that aren't don't have to refinance again and won't uh, when interest rates are you know 400 basis points above where their uh, where their mortgages are. That would be me. So fair enough, Ira. Um, and you had <laughs> Thomas Barkin talking to Michael McKee earlier, saying that it is conceivable that the neutral rate has risen after the pandemic. So it feels like the thing that kind of throws some cold water is that if you have a higher neutral rate, then we're just less tight than we thought. Therefore, we can wait longer to cut, or you don't have to cut as much. Sure, and, and the neutral rate almost certainly is higher, right? The question is how much higher. We, we had a we we had a time period in between the 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 
the crises, both the, from 2009, call it to 2020, to the pandemic, where where our star, the real neutral rate, whatever you want to call it, was probably exceptionally low. And uh, one of the big reasons for that was just the lack of volatility in the uh, uh, in the economy, also lack of volatility in mar- in some markets. Although you know, obviously, markets went up and down, but uh, but generally speaking, you had a a situation where where you had exceptionally low R star. So you know, R star is higher, right? I, I mean, there's almost People who who are saying that it's not, I I think, you know, aren't considering that we're in a different regime now than we were the last 10 years. I think the question is, is it higher like it was in 2005 or 1995 or, you know, 1980? Um, And I suspect that that yes, our store is higher than it was the last decade or so. But we're not going back to the 1980s when, you know, the real neutral rate was probably somewhere closer to eight or nine percent. So, you know, we're not we're not there. Um, But we're also not at 50 basis points we're at one and a half percent or or two percent something like that is is our estimate of where our star is so if i go you know to the morgan stanley fixed income trading floor and go over to the government desk i got a feeling the traders there are just kind of scrolling through tiktok there's not a lot going on it feels like it's a trade range bound kind of trading range is that right iron what maybe gets us out of that yeah, we've we've been in a range. I think we'll probably stay into a range at least until next week when we get CPI and retail sales. Um, you know, I don't I don't see really what would knock us out of this. So so it's not unusual for uh, for ten year, longer term Treasury yields to fall into some thirty to 40, fifty basis point range. You know, call it forty basis point range right now that we're in, and just chop around within that until you get some impetus fr- that's usually fundamentally driven that drives the market out of those ranges. Um, and sometimes those ranges last for months and months. And at a time there was a you know I remember going back to 2015 when uh, we were in the same range for about six months and I was thinking about switching careers because there was nothing right about um, <laughs> so you know I, I don't think we're going there right I think that we'll get some more information over at least the next six weeks that that gives us a better direction and maybe that direction and I think that this is something that that is permeating some of the trading desks is hey what happens if the Fed doesn't cut as much as the market's pricing what mm-hmm. happens if the Fed only cuts two or three times in fact we have a model that you can find out you go to Bico models and we have a, a uh, we look at the options market on on some uh, interest rate futures contracts and what we say is that the, the market's pricing for a 20% chance that the Fed only cuts once or twice this year and wow. and that's something that we have to we have to keep in mind that's a real possibility now and if we continue to have such good data I think it becomes a higher and higher probability as the year goes on that's really interesting I wonder what would happen in the markets in that case like Equities may, I mean, like that. <laughs> equities may like it okay if the growth is really there, but the bond market, I don't know. I think that that would be a real sea change. We've already come in from like six or seven uh, to four. Um, real quick, 20 seconds, 30 year today, are you, do you care? <laughs> Yeah, well, yesterday's ten-year auction went very well, so so I'm I am a little bit concerned about the thirty-year today because what we've seen sometimes is one auction does well, the next auction does poorly, or vice versa. Fair enough. How can you know there's an treasury auction today? Because I. I, wow, I know. She pays attention to stuff. To, to be totally fair, she pays attention in class. I Bloomberg Daybreak is really helpful with these things. Well, so also I said it in if like you get every uh, five, market well, update. Okay, no I one did. listens to John Tucker, but it, it, if you uh, read it, Bloomberg Daybreak after 5:30 a.m., yep. they have really concise bits, not long stories, really bite-sized information for you. And then I cut and paste, put them on my notes, put them on my thing. Look at you, Ira Jersey. Thank I you so more much. I sound organized than Bloomberg I actually Intelligence am. <laughs> senior strategist. Thanks so much for joining us and learning. I mean, this is how she gets so smart. See, but. The key thing is, if you get in after it's 5.30, this is Bloomberg. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's go back to Disney, uh, another stock that's having a good day, up about 9% here uh, in early trading on the back of a quarter that for some people uh, was, you know, kind of like, boy, I think they've got their handle on this thing now. And Laura Martin at Needham, she upgraded the stock to a buy today. So that's helping the stock uh, up 9.9% here today. Let's check in with uh, Geetha Ranganathan. She covers all the media uh, stocks in the industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's been all over uh, this name here. Hey, Geetha, the stock's up about 10% here. What do you think the market's reacting to here today? Yeah, I mean, Disney is definitely back, uh, Paul, back with a bang. Market is reacting to all of the profitability that they're seeing with this company. I mean, one of the big pain points with Disney has really been the lack of streaming profitability, but now there seems to be a, a clear path to the, to the streaming business kind of getting to that profitability metric. So we saw the losses come in way below expectations. It was 65% below what people were projecting. They're still kind of guiding to, you know, hitting profitability by the September quarter, but, but most people I think on the street expect it to happen much, much sooner. And then Hugh Johnston, who is the new CFO, and this was his first call with Disney, basically said that, look, to or, or expect double digit operating margins in the streaming business. And I think that was something that was really, really powerful mm. because we know that, you know, the, the number that we're all chasing is that 20% operating margin where, you know, Netflix has been with their streaming business. So Geetha, based on what we got, what is your question today versus your question yesterday? I mean, I, I think the, the one area that we kind of still need clarity is how all of this, the streaming bundles are going to work. So it, it's really good to see them kind of be proactive and, and go out with their own solution. So they have that uh, sports super app that's coming out a little bit later this year in conjunction with Fox and Warner Brothers. They have their own ESPN Plus standalone app. Again, a little bit of, uh, you know, we're not really sure whether those are necessarily going to cannibalize each other. I don't think so. I think really Disney, what they're trying to do here is kind of create this this super bundle because they, they know that, you know, content bundling works uh, and everybody's kind of looking. Aggregation is the holy grail and I think Disney wants to be at the forefront of it. But, but definitely we need a little bit more kind of clarity at least around like what the financial value creation is going to be. How about the theme park business? That seems to continue to be a really solid business for them. And I know they, you know, they announced several months ago that they're really stepping up their investment in their theme parks and their cruises and all that kind of stuff. How did that business do? Very, very well. So again, operating income was uh, for the quarter was well above $3 billion. That was again above what the street was expecting. And really what we're seeing is a lot of momentum at the international parks. So they opened, you know, they've opened so many new attractions in their uh, overseas properties. You have a new frozen land in Hong Kong. You have the new Zootopia uh, attraction in, in Shanghai. And both of those are doing really, really well for the company. They, and that has really enabled them to take, you know, implement all of these price increases. So international parks really kind of doing extremely well domestically there's a little bit of pressure from wage inflation there's a little bit of pressure from you know tough comps from like the Walt Disney World 50th anniversary celebration but again you know just transient uh, parks are really set up very very well uh, and you mentioned the 60 billion dollar investment now 70 percent of that capex is going to be towards new attractions so this is really going to be a major major profit driver for them going forward 
Uh, Geetha, what, I, there was a journal article that I just felt like helped someone like me who's not seeped in Disney like you guys understand how they're just seeping in to all the Americana that's out there. They said Taylor Swift, football, and Fortnite. But like <laughs> anywhere that you will want to be or listen to or watch, Disney will be there. What did you make of the Fortnite um, investment? super smart move by them right it's so strategic it's so smart and it's still a kind of not a huge investment 1.5 billion gives them some stake gives them some skin in the game and there's a lot of upside not too much downside so i think a really good way for them and and remember uh, alex they've had this kind of really checkered past when it comes to video games it's not that they haven't been there they were in the publishing business didn't really work out for them they exited that business in 2016 started licensing out a lot of their content but you know licensing you're still kind of this passive participant they really need to be there. They need to be an active participant in the video gaming industry. There's so much overlap between all of the audiences that go to the, you know, the Disney parks and, and, and you know, the, the people who are gaming, right? It's all these youngsters and, and they really want to be there. Uh, and this is a great way for them to do it. Well, a listener just writes in here and says, Taylor Swift also announced her concert movie would be exclusively on Disney Plus starting next month. With Samantha, thank songs. you for that. Five, with five new songs. Really? Yeah, so if you already saw it, you're going to want to see it again because there's five new performances on John it. John Tucker's all fired up for that. All right, so... I'm going to have to sit through it. The two of you are going to have to sit through <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Geetha, talk to us about uh, the movie business, the film and entertainment business. That was, at one point for a long time, just a, a source of tremendous value. It was just smash hit after smash hit. Billion-dollar box office became the norm. What are they saying about their theatrical business? Yeah, and they were asked about this last night, Paul. And, you know, the, the content, the studio has has not really been the blockbuster that, you know, of, that it was. It, we've had a whole string of misfires over the past few months. But I, but I think what Bob Iger was saying is they are in the process of rebuilding. That whole content pipeline is refilling. They're having this really smart move here with this new Taylor Swift movie coming out on, on March 15th. And then they, they spoke about, you know, having this new Moana movie. It, this was originally going to be a series on Disney Plus. It's, it's now going to be a theatrical, a full-blown theatrical release. And again, we're prepping for 2026, really, which is going to be the biggest year for the box office uh, ever since the pandemic. And a lot of that will be Disney kind of driving the slate, right? With You have the whole Star Wars coming back with Mandalorian and Grogu. You have a whole set of Marvel releases. So th it's going to be really interesting as we kind of build to that. So again, nothing really major in 2024, maybe other than, you know, kind of the Deadpool movie. Uh, but we're, we're kind of building okay. towards a much stronger slate I'm sorry. in 25, 26. Nothing big coming except for the Deadpool. <laughs> Excuse me. I've been waiting for this movie for years. Deadpool 3? <laughs> You're a big fan of the franchise. Definitely it, not my it, audience that I'm talking to right now. Um, okay, but oh, that's I a thought, main event. I thought you said Deadpool. I thought it was like a financial movie. Oh, I would have I would have gone see that. Have Ryan you not Reynolds. seen Deadpool? It's very, Ryan Reynolds. It is very brilliant. Yeah. I don't go out much. This is the third one. You're having Wolverine make a little uh, cameo. Whatever. Anyway, it's going to be awesome. Um, Paul, what do you make of like how fast Disney was able to move? Well, I, I, a lot of people tell you they didn't move fast enough, but it's. I think Plus what Bob I. Bob Iger came in. I mean. Yeah, yeah, and it's. But the stock's been kind of dead money for a while, and 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 Geetha well knows here. It's just a question of. When can we get a sense of when those streaming losses are going to be in the rearview mirror? And, and Keith, you know, Bob Iger surprised us, you know, I guess a, a year or so ago when he said some of these assets might be for sale, like the ABC network, some of the cable networks. Any update on that? No. So, you know, uh, yes, he did. He, you know, we, we did have him kind of say everything's up for sale. And then he kind of walked back all of that. And now it, it, it see, you know, it, it, it's kind of starting to make sense because they're obviously taking all that content 
they're putting it now on the super app. So it, it makes sense for them to still kind of hold on to their linear TV assets because they still do have very valuable sports rights on there. So I think they're kind of aiming for this bigger kind of grander strategy. I don't necessarily think that they're looking to sell any of their linear TV networks right now. Oh, interesting. Okay, very good. Geetha, great update. Thanks for taking the time. Geetha Ranganathan, uh, she is the media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us via Zoom from the uh, HQ down in Princeton, New Jersey. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Here's one of the top red stories in the terminal right now. Greenlight Capital forced to shift its strategy as the growth of passive investing and algorithmic trading transformed the markets. Uh, quite a statement from David Einhorn. He spoke to Barry Ritholtz, who is the host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Here's part of that conversation. I, I view the markets as fundamentally broken. Like the number- Fundamentally broken, that's yeah. a big statement. Yeah, there's, there's uh, value is just not a consideration for most investment money that's out there. There's mm-hmm. all the machine money and algorithmic money, which is which doesn't have an opinion about value, it has an opinion about price. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the price going to be in 15 minutes? And I wanna be ahead of that. Or zero day options. What is the price of the S&P or whatever stock you're doing for today? What's it going to be in the next half hour, two hours, three hours? Those are opinions about price. Those are not opinions about value. Passive investors have no opinion about value. They're gonna assume everybody else's done the work. Right. Right. And then you have all of what's left of active management and so much of it. The value industry has gotten completely annihilated. That was uh, David Einhorn speaking to Barry Ritholtz, who is the host of Masters in Business Business podcast. You can definitely listen to the whole interview on that podcast. Barry joins us now in the studio. Barry, what, what was your takeaway from the interview? I mean, you could argue, obviously, he's talking his book, but today is a beautiful case in point of like nearing 5,000 on a couple big tech stocks, and that's it. So there, there were a couple of big takeaways. You know, we didn't talk about what he said uh, surrounding the SEC no longer really enforcing things. Yeah, they'll enforce a little bit of insider trading rules, but 
there's there's an absence there according to Einhorn. To me, what's really fascinating about him is here's a guy who had a spectacular start to his career. First 15 years put up incredible numbers, famously shorted Allied Capital, famously shorted Lehman Brothers right mm, before yeah. they went bankrupt, and then hit a rough stretch in the 2010s. Normally, that's where a story would end. But what makes Einhorn such a fascinating investor and analyst, and he was very proud to describe himself as an analyst, is <laughs> they rethought their strategy. They looked at what's changed in the structure of the market and said, we can no longer do basic superficial value investing and hope the market catches up. We have to change our metrics. We have to change our approach. And for the past five years, they've been putting up really good numbers. The, what the did shift they has worked. What did they change? How did, what did they change to, I guess? So, so what their belief and their strategy used to be is find stocks that the market doesn't recognize the value, what he described as variant perception, buy them and wait for the market to figure it out. Okay. Hey, you know, we buy stocks if the PE of the market is 16, we can find stocks with a PE of 12 and eventually everybody will come to our party. He said as value investors have seen outflows, as value funds have gone out of business, you can't rely on that sector to do that. So now we have to find deep value stocks that are taking matters into their own hands. What do you mean by that? Well, cheap companies that have enough growth and enough cash flow to do big increases in dividends, big increases in share buybacks, and even if the rest of the market doesn't figure out, their own business model will allow their stock price to grow by returning capital to shareholders through buybacks and dividends. As that gets harder, though, isn't everybody looking for exactly the same thing in a smaller pool of candidates? You know, back when I was on a trading desk in the 1990s, in the medieval times, there were thousands and thousands of sell-side analysts, and everybody was looking for, for, for those sort of stocks. And, and there was there's something to be said for the shift, and I think he got this right, algorithmic trading, uh, quantitative analysis, and and passive investing has eliminated a huge number of those analysts. Then you take, you know, the Wilshire 5000 is 3,400 stocks. There aren't as many stocks as there once were. Anything that's small cap or micro cap is completely overlooked. And so the odd thing about price discovery and passive investing is it's created these inefficiencies where value is getting overlooked. If everybody is doing either growth or passive, it creates an opportunity for investors like Einhorn. Interesting. Do we know how much assets he has under management these I days? I think it's about three or four billion dollars. I mean, four. it's yep. off his peak. Yep. He went through a period in the mid-2010s, markets up 10, 12%, they're down eight, 10, 12%. Wow. They saw a bunch of outflows after really putting some big numbers up. In fact, over the, since inception in 96, they've still outperformed the S&P by just about double. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a touch light of that, but not on an annual basis, total, courtesy of compounding for 20 yep. plus years. But there was a, the period in the 2010s where he spent nearly the whole decade not putting up great numbers, and it's only the past five years that Greenlight has begun to outperform again. And that's what this second act is very unusual in finance. Mm -hmm. Most people don't say, okay, I'm going to take everything I've done for the past 20 years, throw it out and start over. I, I give a lot of credit to him. What's interesting too is that he mentions, you know, algos, et cetera, but also 
one of the top-read articles also right now in the terminal is meme traders fueling an over 2,600% spike in a holographic tech firm, <laughs> meaning that like we saw Gabe Plotkin getting taken out by a bunch of uh, of, of random re guys sitting at home on a computer. Like that must be very difficult too for him to sort of reckon with. You know, the, the funny thing when you see that take place is uh, you have to realize that even even a, a, a huge thousand percent move in some of these meme stocks, they have to be supported by the fundamentals eventually. You know, markets will eventually... Maybe Bed Bath & Beyond would disagree. Right? <laughs> well, well, but you know, when we look at what happened with AMC, perfect example, yep. they very intelligently said, hey, what's our stock price doing up here? Let's float some float some shares. Let's get, get some capital in. And they were able to very mm -hmm. inexpensively clean up their balance sheet in a way that most meh companies don't get an option, don't get, get an opportunity to. So, so yeah, and, and if you look at all those meme stocks, they're all round trips. Every last one of them is, you know, they, they've run up a thousand percent. They've given back 90% of those gains. Go it, bankrupt. Uh, right. It, they, they've yeah. been, hey, by the way, if you want to buy a bankrupt company, then maybe you're not, before the bankruptcy filing, afterwards is a different conversation. Right. But before, maybe you're not a really good fundamental investor. <laughs> you're just playing that trend. I think Einhorn, and we didn't talk about the, the meme stocks very much, but I think he would be he would be intended to to you know short those. All right. All right, Barry, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Wonderful to get you in here. I have Barry Ritholtz joining us. You can download the Masters in Business podcast right now at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcast. Catch the show every Saturday at 10 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. It's going to be a great conversation. I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how he gets all these good guests. I think it's because he's a good interviewer and he's got a lot of people that download his podcast. So it's yeah, worth your yeah, time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We're like almost close to 5,000 on the S&P, so I realize it's a round <laughs> number, but we still care. Uh, let's see if Dan Griffith cares. He is a, a Huntington Private Bank. Um, he's a vice president, senior vice president there and director of wealth strategy. Dan, I appreciate that you're longer term and like 5,000 won't mean a lot. However, what I keep being struck by is that we are continually oversold, way above our skis, but no one wants to sell right now as we near 5,000. No, I think that's right. I think um, what's interesting is as, and maybe this is for retail customers too, the 5,000 number does make, make a difference because broadly it gets people to say, oh, maybe there is some confidence in the market. And I think there are a lot of underlying factors that support that. But I think round numbers sometimes do kind of wake people up and get them to say, maybe this is something I should pay a little more attention to. So what are you paying attention to these days, Dan? We had a great finish to 2023. Probably took a lot of investors you know, by surprise here. What, 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 are we, what are we doing here in February? A lot of, I think we're looking at a lot of core numbers and right now a lot of them look very positive. Um, you know, obviously we're looking for uh, earnings growth next year, this year, you know, maybe 10% or more. We're looking at you know, jobless numbers. Again, we got a good number this mm -hmm. morning, which I thought was really positive uh, on the heels of, you know, some great numbers earlier this month. Um, and we're looking at the sentiment of our customers in particular. We are a great middle market bank that does a wonderful job, particularly in the Midwest, particularly in manufacturing. 
And as we talk to our clients, they say, we're really optimistic about a lot of things, which is reflected in the ISM numbers mm -hmm. that, you know, earlier this month that, that were pretty positive. So I think what we're looking at is the core fundamentals. Um, and even if we have a little bit of a slowdown later this year, which we're still 50-50 and have been for quite some time, we think that that will probably be a pretty, you know, modest pullback that the, the economy is healthy enough to recover from. But let's be honest, it's still big tech. I mean, you look at the S&P equal weighted and we have definitely hit resistance. S&P moves higher. Yeah, okay, you get the Russell is having a little bit of a bounce today, but this is not a widespread rally. So what do you do? I, that, I think there's some uh, validity to that. I think it's it's better than it used to be. Maybe that might be the way to describe not it. As that. Like Disney, <laughs> not as bad as we thought. Okay. That's right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the recovery is a little broader this year. Obviously, it's still, still one-sided to some degree, but you know the earnings beats we saw were 80% across the board, and that's a good example of where we think that recovery is maybe broader than it would have been in 2023. So what are some of the, the industries that are the sectors that you guys look at for opportunity here? I mean, John Tucker's been long the Magnificent Seven, but the rest of us are looking for some, some value here, I think. Well, I think that's where to look around to say if, if the, the remainder of the sectors are going to be, be able to recover in ways that the Magnificent Seven weren't, or, or they'll be able to kind of mirror what happened in 2023, then some of the sectors we're looking for are the, the ones that have been left out a little bit. Some of that also is going to be you know sectors that are less uh, interested in interest rate fluctuation. So we're looking at that as well. So again, a lot of manufacturing uh, is less related to interest rate. Uh, and so as a result, they're looking at just core supply chain chain, core, core demand, with consumer sentiment still being really close to 100 again, a lot of them are very optimistic. And so there's upside there, too. So let's talk about the industrial um, sector, because it's so interesting with all the Infrastructure Act, the CHIP Act, and the IRA, which is a structural story for these guys. But in terms of order books and actual profits and money in hand, we haven't seen that happen. How do you think that cycle plays out? And then how do you manage that as an investor? I think there are two things that are relevant. One is that we are starting to see inventories and demand start to just the beginning of them start to tick up a little bit. So I think we're we're just watching the wave begin to grow there. And again, in the conversations I get to have every day with business owners, I see that on a kind of case-by-case -case basis. There's optimism there. That makes sense. Um, if you look back at 2022, part of the strength that we see in the market today is that people were building in a potential recession in 2023. So they kind of tightened their belts and, and looked around and said, hey, what do we need to do to prepare for a recession that ultimately didn't happen? And so as a result, many of those companies have a core strength going into 2024 at, at right now uh, that results uh, from some really conservative behavior. And I think um, particularly in manufacturing, that is a great example of that. So I think a lot of people are coming from a very solid foundation that isn't as interest rate restricted as we mentioned before. And so as a result, I think they're gonna do well as we move into this year. One of the names that uh, you guys talk about is Parker, Parker Hannafin, uh, based in Cleveland, Ohio. A good talk Northeast about, Ohio company, that's, that's right. That, that yes. is manufacturing, the stock's up 11% year to date, up about 47% over the trailing 12 months. So it's been a good call. What's your play there? Well, I think there are two things that are uh, kind of a good news, bad news scenario. One of them is that um, as manufacturing and, and industry kind of recovers, they're going to recover, right? They benefit from that as their core business. And that's the good news. The bad news for them, or maybe for other folks, is um, they really benefit from people like Boeing and Airbus kind of stubbing their toe a little bit. So as Boeing has suffered some bad news, that's kind of good news for Parker Hannafin. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like uh, that news is going to any, uh, go away anytime soon. And so we mm -hmm. think that's, that's a play and something that our folks are looking at. You know what Paul did? He left me Exxon. I that know. was so ah, sweet. <laughs> uh, and there's Microsoft. We'll get to that. But um, you, you like Exxon. I can't blame you after that quarter. Um, what do you like about them? 
can, could you still buy here? Yes, I think so. We've we've been excited about them for a long time, and obviously, it's kind of funny to come back and say we're we're still excited. We still think it's good, and fortunately, good earnings news kind of played out well there. We think their play in the in the shale, uh, the Permian shale where they are right now, that is kind of just beginning to come out. And I also think the fact that they are a much more vertical company makes a big difference. You know, because they have the opportunity to, if oil is volatile, they're still working on the chemical side as well. Mm-hmm. So we think the the vertical nature of their company makes it. Uh, makes it something that is a lot more attractive than even others peers in their in their sector. Alex, do people even talk about peak oil anymore? No. No, no, no. But I mean, yes, no. That'll always come back, but if what we've learned in the past 15 years is that US oil companies will innovate like crazy and they can and they can execute. Like the Permian Revolution and, and the Shell Revolution, that happened from like the small guys, yeah. not mm-hmm. the big guys. So as long as we have that innovation there, it's gonna be hard to really see that. God, Exxon Mobil. It's a peak demand thing. Yeah. That's the that, that that's it. the question. Are we at we're definitely not at, Hit. but okay. that's what we're definitely headed to that at some point. Um hence Saudi Arabia, you know, pulling back on uh, what they're going to be producing in terms of 13 million barrels a day and developing to 12 million, right? Like you have, the end is coming, but it could be coming like 40 years later. Saudi Aramco going to do, a, I guess, a secondary offering now with yeah, like yeah, Goldman yeah. Sachs and City, $20 billion offering. Uh, so it's a nice payday. We'll see how, yeah, how that goes. Because I got Brent crew, it's still at 80 bucks. Good time to sell some stock, I would think. Right. All right, another, I think, name that our analysts here at Bloomberg Intelligence are super bullish on mm-hmm. is Microsoft. Uh, so what's your call there? Again, kind of singing the same song. I hate to do it. Not not particularly innovative, but I think if you look at it, we used to talk about Microsoft as you know a computing company. Now you look at it and say they're a computing, they're a cloud company, they're a gaming company, they're AI company. And in particular, if you look back, they're really starting to report meaningful profits from their AI business. Uh, and so obviously we think that's the beginning of a wave as well. There's lots of reasons to think that Microsoft has some upside. I'm looking at the ANR function for Microsoft. A couple things jump out at me. First, 65 analysts cover the stock. That's is, a is lot. That, how that's efficient a lot. is that? That's a, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, 60 buys, five holds, no sells. So the street likes it. Yes. Well, well, what I also love about these picks is that like, these are like, I mean, I appreciate Microsoft is at the forefront of AI, but they're also like old school yeah. real economy companies. Again, I realize that Microsoft might be treading that line in a big, big way, but like a Parker Hannifin and a Nexon, like these are not, uh, we're gonna get into a recession, everything's gonna be terrible, you can only bet on AI. Right. Well, I think Alex, that's right, right? You look, Exxon's another example of where you've got wonderful core fundamentals in that vertical piece that we talked about. And on top of that, they've got the horsepower and ability and a track record, I think in both cases, to do the kind of innovation that's gonna bring them into mm-hmm. the future in a meaningful way. And those are the kind of companies we really like. All right, very good, Dan. Thanks for making the trip in thanks from for Ohio, having me. Dan Griffith, yes. Senior Vice President and Director of Wealth Strategy at Huntington Private Bank. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like 
everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So something that's on my radar, it may have faded a little bit from yours, but it is important, is the Biden administration placing a moratorium on LNG export uh, projects to non-FTA countries. It was huge. I was in Florence, and it was a huge, huge deal. Everyone was complaining about it, everyone was worried about it, and no one understands it. So let's get into it, because Joe Manchin certainly is. So today, this is what's happening. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which is led by West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin, is probing the administration's decision, and they're holding a hearing on the issue, at which Deputy Secretary of Energy David Turk will be there. This is just one of many hearings on this, as many got a lot of head-scratching when this came out. So let's get some more insight here. Dustin Meyer is Senior VP of Policy, Economics, and Regulatory Affairs at the American Petroleum uh, Institute down in D.C. What do you think, Dustin, we can expect? Um, I realize for some people this may feel niche, but this is a huge moment for energy in our country in terms of wealth and in terms of security. Yeah, you got it right, Alex. I mean, the benefits of U.S. LNG are clearer now than ever. I mean, the role that U.S. LNG has played, especially in the last couple of years, in helping our allies in Europe displace Russian pipeline gas is really difficult to overstate. But beyond the geopolitical benefits, the benefits to the U.S. economy are equally obvious. These projects are enormous creators of jobs down in the Gulf Coast, wherever they're developed. This is a really good thing for our country. This is a really good thing for our allies. That's why we think it's so unbelievably misguided for the administration to be issuing this pause right now. What is the reasoning from the administration for issuing this pause? They would cite a lot of things. I think most people would agree that this is pretty nakedly political in what they are doing, but they would cite concerns over what is the impact on domestic natural gas prices? What is the climate impact? And how does this play with the evolving transition around uh, the energy landscape? We think at this stage, we don't need to do studies on this anymore. We have the proof. We've been exporting for seven years. We have the evidence that can show the enormous economic benefits, that can show the enormous geopolitical benefits, and that can show the enormous environmental benefits. Everywhere around the world, when gas gets scarce, countries turn back to coal. Mm -hmm. That's why it's incredibly important for us to maintain that reliable and abundant supply from the United States. And which, Paul, it's also a head scratcher, because if you're worried about methane emissions from natural gas, then like limit production, like why export, like export's the end game, right? So that just was a little bit of head scratcher too. Um, So Dustin, I mean, fair enough, it's political. So why do we really care? Come November 6th, isn't this just gonna all magically go away? Well, it d- depends on the you know I- incoming what the result of the election is, but we think that there's already serious consequences of doing this uh, pause. There's a lot of buyer appetite out there right now for more LNG, right? Buyers from Japan, from Korea, from Europe, from Brazil, from India, from everywhere everywhere around the world. They want more gas. They would love to get it from the United States, but this sends a very chilling invest uh, message 
to investors and to potential buyers. Dustin, how big of a player is the United States in the global LNG market? Oh, we're huge. So we are right now the world's largest LNG exporter. As a reminder, it wasn't that long ago when the United States was not just an importer of LNG. We were projected by many to be the world's largest importer of LNG. So that massive transformation has, of course, been good for the United States, but that's brought enormous benefits overseas as well. So as the world's largest LNG exporter, you know, it was us who was able to redirect our flows mm -hmm. in 2022 to Europe to make sure that they could displace that Russian pipeline gas that their system had become dependent on. It's a really good thing to have these cargos out there on the water, but everyone recognizes that we're going to need even more. We need a clear permitting process for doing exactly that, and that's what this pause jeopardizes. Here's my question, Dustin. Where in this may there be a point? Like, where should we be a little bit more um, judicial in how we issue permits and how things are built? Like, yeah. Where's the point? Yeah, well, no one is suggesting that there shouldn't be a process, but there is already a very well-established and frankly, fairly time-consuming process for an LNG export project to get approved in the United States. First, you need a permit from the DOE for exports to free trade countries. Then you have to go through a very lengthy, comprehensive FERC review. And then finally, you get your permit from DOE for exports to non-FTA countries. Nobody's suggesting that we shouldn't have a process all we're suggesting is that process should be clear and transparent and should use, by and large, the process that not just the previous administration, but the Obama administration before it used. Remember, most of the projects that are exporting today are a result of approvals from the Obama administration because the Obama administration understood the geopolitical benefits, they understood the environmental benefits, and they understood the local economic benefits here in the United States. That's all we're suggesting that we should maintain that review process. What type of response, if any, can the energy industry do to kind of, I don't know, either reverse this, get around it? Call him. Yes. And have him go to DC and talk to lawmakers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and look, we have, we have been talking with a lot of folks on the Hill and around the Hill to make sure they understand the ramifications of this. We strongly believe that LNG has a great role to play in reducing emissions around the world and bolstering the energy security of our allies. Our allies have been very clear about this as well. And so we have to communicate around this and make that abundantly clear. I would note that there's so much that the industry is doing, for example, on reducing methane emissions across our value chain. That is a good thing that we're doing, that we're doing to reduce emissions at the liquefaction sites themselves. Those are important questions. We're working on that very hard. We think that that cements and even further um, extends the value proposition of LNG at this time. A lot of this conversation always proceeds as if coal demand around the world has already been eliminated or that in fact is falling precipitously. Nothing could be further from the truth. Coal demand last year set a new record level. Most forecasters expect it'll be a new record this year as well. If you look at the energy outlooks for China, for India, for Vietnam, for major Asian economies, you can see they are left with a choice between coal or natural gas. We think that choice is pretty clear. It should be natural gas. All right, Dustin, thanks so much. Appreciate you hopping on. I know it's a busy day for you. Dustin Meyer, Senior VP of Policy, Economics, and Regulatory Affairs uh, at the American Petroleum Institute. And what he brings up at the end there is the idea of energy equality. It's different to see it here mm -hmm. versus like India right. or Africa or yep. countries that don't have any power or 
minimal power at all. Yeah. And then how do you go from something like coal to solar or nothing to solar? Like yeah. there's just not the infrastructure uh, yeah. or the money to do that. And I just remember from, you know, the first year of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, European countries saying we're going to build floating plants mm -hmm. to lick to what is it? Reliquify. Reliquify. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it comes across on the ship from the U.S. Yeah. and then we can, you know. Yeah, they have them. They're good. Yeah. They're they're building them up. They're they're floating outside. They're yeah. good. Yeah. I, it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, so we'll keep on top of that. Alex will make sure we stay on top I'll, of I'll that, force Paul. That, that story. <laughs> This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.